Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. In the Philippines, unknown numbers of children are in institutional care. Commonly known as residential care or orphanages, these institutions have been established to fill a social welfare gap and to better support child welfare and protection efforts. But what are the implications for the kids in these institutions? And what does this system tell us about the monetization of children's welfare? To discuss these questions, I am joined by Dr. Steve Roche, a lecturer in social work and an early career researcher at Charles Darwin University. Steve researches child protection and social policy settings, with a particular focus on child and family welfare in the Philippines and he teaches across child protection and social work theory units. His doctoral research, completed in 2020 at Monash University, explores the role of residential care as a child protection mechanism in the Philippines, concentrating on young people's perspectives and experiences of living in residential care and the social context that surrounds their care and protection. Steve has published a range of articles on this topic across leading social work and social policy journals and he has a forthcoming book chapter in the Oxford Handbook of Child Protection Systems. Steve, welcome to SEAC Stories. Thank you so much, Natalie. Pleasure to be with you. So I'd like to start by just thinking about the context. We're going to be talking about the intersection between child protection and child and youth residential care in the Philippines. And I just wanted you to give us a sense of the scale of the issue. You know, how many residential institutions are there and how many children are there in these institutions? Well, that's a really tough question to answer. I mean, the the short answer is we don't know. What we do know is that a few years ago, the Department of Social Welfare and Development, which is a a national department in the Philippines, put together a list of around 600 residential care settings or organisations that provide residential care programs. But it's very clear and argued by many that there are many, many more than this. And so what that means is that it's likely there's tens of thousands of children living in these types of settings in the Philippines. So I just wanted to get a sense of the age range of the children. Are we looking at early childhood, you know, under five, or are they in their mid-teens? You know, who are these kids? Yeah, all age ranges. Um, These programs cater for uh, children who are given up for adoption at birth, as well as uh, children and young people ageing up to 18, and in some circumstances, higher. Some children will stay in residential care beyond the age of 18. They might be engaged in, say, education or training. But we don't know what the key age focus of all these programs is across the country. There isn't really a a study that's uh, looked at the kind of demographics. It hasn't been a national study, really, residential programs in the Philippines. We'll come to what you looked at as part of your study in a minute, but you've just mentioned adoption. What are the other reasons that a child might end up in residential care in the Philippines? Well, there are so many reasons, Natalie, and I think they could be boiled down to to three. One is poverty, which compromises family-based care. There's child maltreatment. And then finally, there's a kind of recruitment element of residential care programs. And I think the backdrop of all this and important context to residential care in the Philippines is the welfare state features of the Philippines. And so we can think of the Philippines as 
what's called a productivist welfare state, which basically means that its policy settings have prioritized economic growth and goals over social policy. And that's meant that social rights, social policies, social protection are quite thin, particularly for families. So things like unemployment support, income security, disability benefits, health insurance. There are some schemes um, that do cover some portions of the population, but these are relatively inadequate um, in preventing poverty for many families. So does this mean that there's a gap in the social welfare that is being provided by the state? And, and I guess that sort of leads me to my next question, which is who funds the residential care programs? Exactly. There's a huge gap left. So given that the, the national government, local governments provide really limited levels of social protection, what's filled this gap is the non-government sector, and that's both domestic and international And look, there's a really long history here, which um, you can trace back to Spanish colonization in the 16th century, where charity or models of charity, religious orders, institutions like hospitals, like orphanages were first introduced. These Spanish colonization created all these kinds of traditions of care and the view that it's not government's role to look after its citizens, but it's the role of the church and charity to provide social care. Continuing with the historical view, the US took over from the Spanish and colonised in 1898 all the way through to 1946. And they also carried forward uh, these models of care and also inserted a kind of individualist view of social problems that The U.S. has today as well. The other thing to think about what's called by some scholars the orphan industrial complex. And so what that's referring to is this phenomenon where international individual actors, organizations, churches, charities, middle class families and individuals involving themselves in models of welfare in other countries. And so things like child sponsorship, donations, these kinds of things, within the orphan industrial complex, there's a monetization of children's welfare where middle class individuals from the global north, small churches from the global north, NGOs and other kinds of organizations, say schools, can participate in the welfare of children in another country like the Philippines, a kind of transnational exchange of welfare. That is quite the picture you've painted there. And when I asked you earlier about the reasons children might end up in these institutions, one of the words you used was recruitment. Is that connected to this industrial orphan complex you just mentioned? Yeah, absolutely, because what it creates is small economies where an organization's been developed or put together by, uh, say, an organization or group of individuals in the Philippines. They might have come there from overseas. In my research, I've visited Italians, Americans, Australians who have put together these organizations. And they create little small economies where people are getting paid, families might be getting some kind of sponsorship, but they also have children in their care. 
And all of that's being supported by donations. And many of those donations are coming from religious charities, both overseas and also domestic. They're funded by religious organisations, by international charities. Are they regulated in the Philippines? I mean, who is making sure that they are abiding by relevant health standards and what is their duty of care? Are, are they licensed? or? Yeah, so there is some form of licensing by the Department of Social Welfare and Development, and that's been a recent development around the last five and ten years. Prior to that, there wasn't much regulation at all. The regulation, you know, I would argue is pretty weak. It might look at, say, the facilities, um, whether they meet a standard, you know, is there a fire escape or things like this. There isn't necessarily um, a strong focus on the type of care they're providing or the quality of care, but there is some oversight. But that said, there, there are many, many unlicensed and unregulated organisations there. It's not that hard, seemingly, for foreigners to set up NGOs and try and do good work in the way that they think might be helpful to children and their communities. Yeah, it's a very interesting situation where there is clearly a pressing need where children are being mistreated or experiencing poverty and people come in and try to provide assistance and try to provide help, but sometimes it can lead to further damage. So we'll come to that shortly, but first just let us know what the international standards are. What is recognised as best practice when it comes to institutional care for children? There's global consensus that family-based care where children are living with either kin or in a family setting is care environment that's most conducive to a child's healthy growth and development and is in their best interests. And so we know from decades and decades of research that particularly for younger children, living in institutions really can impact growth and development, the development of strong attachments, positive attachments, caring relationships. And we also know that types of institutional care aren't really conducive to these environments don't really have necessarily high levels of warmth, caregivers that are consistent and continue through a child's development. And so all these kinds of challenges with institutional care mean that it's quite risky for children. There's a risk there that their well-being and development will be compromised. So let's go into the details of your study now that you undertook for your doctoral research. You spoke to many people as part of this study, and we're talking about carers, the people who work in these institutions, but you also spoke to children themselves. What was that process like for you as a researcher? Challenging, and it was also a privilege to be able to hear these young people's stories and ideas. You know, I think the one of the objectives of this research was to really promote the voice of these young people who are relatively marginalised in particularly academic literature, but also more broadly in general understandings of Philippines and the welfare state and who it involves and impacts. So the goal was really to capture those voices of those young people in a, in a really ethical way and a way that suited them. So it, that was quite challenging. It, it meant project advisors, a lot of support in designing the study, an interpreter for those young people that didn't speak English or didn't speak English well. So part of the interviews I conducted with young people, 
we used uh, life history posters. And so we would get a big, big sheet of cardboard, put it out on the table, and we'd, we'd go through their life history and we'd draw it. And we'd try and find out what were the, you know, the big moments in their life, the most important moments, the happy moments, the sad moments, whatever they wanted to, to put on that life history poster. And from that, I got a really good picture of who they were, who the most important relationships were in their life and at what points, but also the, the reasons that they had arrived in a residential care setting. I really love that use of, uh, I guess I could call it art therapy. Is that right? Is it a type of art therapy or like storytelling? Or um, I think it's more of a narrative, it's a narrative approach. I wouldn't say it's therapeutic per se because it is just a research interview. Although, you know, I think many of the young people really enjoyed this focus on themselves and, and thinking about who they are and why they're living in this place and where they've ended up. But it's just really about these kinds of approaches uh, which are slightly more participatory than a standard interview. They're just more about making sure that the participant has more control over the the research process and control over what the the information or data that they're providing and feeling like they're more empowered than, say, other research processes. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. So definitely, uh, well, not necessarily a therapeutic approach, but a way of eliciting information in a way that empowers the interviewee. So you did your study in the capital city of Manila and also in a, a smaller regional city. What was the difference in your findings, your key findings between these two study sites? Yeah. So there were some key differences between uh, those two locations. So the regional location um, is is a place called Dumaguete City in province of Negros Oriental, which is a a beautiful part of the world, big mountains um, jutting up against the ocean and a wonderful little city there. And so those children, you know, they might have been more involved in, um, say, child labor on sugarcane plantations or their families might have be small subsistence farmers or fishing would be a way of receiving income. But often those families weren't able to earn enough income to support their children and their, their, the family care was compromised. Whereas in Manila, you know, high-density, high-population urban context, um, a lot of children and young people that I spoke to who'd previously been, say, living on the streets had experiences of assaults and sexual assaults living on the streets with their families and, you know, in some cases had really harsh experiences. But what was a commonality was that their family-based care was often compromised because of poverty, lack of income, lack of capacity to receive income or family breakdown. So a a parent would need to move across the country in search of employment or parents might get separated or uh, a parent might might have died or there might have been experiences of child maltreatment. So things like exposure to family violence or family violence, corporal punishment and children would run away, these types of experiences. So we know that most of these facilities are established and funded by international agencies 
as you were saying earlier, and the charity sector, what needs to change within this sector in order to come closer to the international standards which prioritise deinstitutionalisation and, and instead advocate for family care? A lot needs to change, Natalie. I think the programmatic response to families who aren't able to care for their children or when children have been maltreated and they can really no longer stay safely with a family. The residential care model is entrenched. It's an entrenched response to those situations. And that's really hard to unpick moving forward. So what needs to happen is that slowly funding and programs need to move towards supporting families to maintain their care of children. And so that would mean providing resources, income support, as well as other kinds of um, social support, parenting skills, these types of things to help a family maintain their care of a child rather than that child moving into a residential care setting when that family can't care for them. There's also a real need for early intervention. So for organisations to be able to identify when families are struggling a little bit and to be able to provide supports early before things turn into a bit of a crisis. So what about the role of the government? I mean, we've talked about how how these kids are sort of falling through the social support network or the gaps in that network. Is this issue even on the radar of policymakers in the Philippines? Well, the, the government's role should be expanded. The governance arrangements of the Philippines make it a bit more complex. So the local government code of 1991 meant that governance was decentralised. So the national government would devolve, especially approaches to health and social services, to local governments to arrange for themselves. What that means is that really it's up to local government units to provide programs, use their budgets towards supporting children and families. And what we're really seeing is that local government units don't necessarily have the resources or the skills and capability to roll out family-based programs or other types of relevant supports. So what really does need to happen is a large cultural shift in the approaches to family welfare and moving away from these these models to, say, family-based care. So, It's one of those topics that, for good reason, has the potential to make you feel a great deal of despair. So a lot of sensitivities involved with research like this and obviously so much need. So I'm just very grateful that we've got researchers like you doing this sort of work and um, also thankful that you've been willing to share some of your findings with our listeners on SEAC Stories. Thank you for joining us, Steve. Thank you so much, Natalie. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.